We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. kind of mythical powers does a sun devil have? we got to consider that. It's embarrassing, but we are who we are. We're not a very good team, but we're 3-1 and one somehow. And we got all the voters fooled, thinking we're pretty good. Jaworski Lane at 275 pounds showed a heck of a lot of athletic ability. Welcome to the Rotowire College Football Podcast. It is Tuesday, December 7th. We are recapping... Conference Championship Weekend. This is the Matthias Kiwanuka of College Football Podcast. Uh, John McKechnie, who always joins me on Tuesdays and for our preview shows later in the week, which we'll probably have to wait until we get some some more meaningful bowl games to, to get back to those. But a ton to recap uh, on this Tuesday uh, from Conference Championship Weekend. And Jonathan, uh, you know, reluctantly, I, I think we need to start in the SEC. We're not going to go in order uh, of how these games transpired. This was the biggest game of the weekend. Um, had huge implications for for ultimately what transpired with the college football playoff. And uh, not to give anything away, but based on what happened, both Alabama and Georgia are now in the college football playoff. And Alabama, not Georgia, <laughs> is the number one team in the country. So you can connect the dots. Um, and, and you were in attendance at this game in Atlanta. You were on the scene. Uh, it looked like a full day, full night, full weekend, really. For you, um, walk us through, you know, what your mindset was heading into the game, what your mindset was once the game started, uh, and then where you were at mentally, you know, in the closing moments of this one. Yeah, man, it's it's a lot to unpack here. It was, um, you know, something that obviously you've been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, I'm getting all, all excited. The, the group kind of has an idea of what, what we're going to do to watch the game. I have uh, basically no designs of, of going to the game, get a call from, from a buddy on Friday asking if I wanted to go. And I'm like, well, well, sure. But like, what, you know, what's it looking like? He's like, well, is free too much? And I'm like, well, okay. Twist my arm. So ended up, you know, kind of falling, uh, falling into a ticket just kind of out of nowhere on, on Friday afternoon. So focus, uh, what was difficult for the rest of the day on Friday, S- Saturday rolls around people descend upon my, my apartment and we head on over to, to the Mercedes Benz stadium, do a little tailgating, uh, I'd never been to the Benz before. That was a really cool stadium. It's massive and, and uh, you know, obviously brand new and very nice, everything like that. Good sight lines. Get get to the seats. Uh, Georgia just goes ahead. You know, I'll, I'll get into the game 
of course, that's the most important part. So Georgia goes up 10-0 first quarter. Look like they're starting to kind of impose their will a little bit. You know, that they, they get the 98-yard touchdown drive with culminating in, the, in that touchdown to Darnell Washington. You're like, okay, like we might be on here. Like the, this is this is good. This is kind of what I was expecting us to be able to do, where the defense is showing up and the offense is playing a good kind of possession style, trying to keep Alabama on the sidelines as much as they can and just going uh, from there. But second quarter is obviously where everything fell apart. What I talked about on, on Thursday uh, was my concern was my concern saying that basically the, the way that Alabama can beat Georgia is the same way that great offenses have just great, beaten great defenses over the course of, of the last few years. And that's kind of the new trend in modern college football. So no matter how good your defense is, it almost doesn't matter. And we started to see it with these explosive plays. Georgia hadn't really faced a, a team that could pull those off against them all year. They, they, um, they went away from the, from the game plan that – they stuck with their own game plan. They didn't really go with the things that made teams like Auburn uh, or Texas A&M successful, where they brought added pressure. Georgia mostly was bringing four guys on, on any given down is what they call is like a simulated pressure so that it's four guys. You just don't know where it's coming from. And they just, they stuck to that because they were worried about their corners, understandably so. But at a certain point you need to find a way to, to get to Bryce Young. They weren't able to do that. Um, I, I think a lot of the, a lot of the game kind of swung on that on that Bryce Young fumble that he was able to miraculously recover despite a bunch of Bulldogs being around him. Alabama goes ahead, scores there. And then, you know, the, the classic Dabo Swinney middle eight, you know, Alabama uh, dominated that and it, it changed everything. It went from being, um, you know, a close game to all of a sudden Georgia's down 31-17 early in the third quarter. And, and they never really recovered from that. The defense played a little bit better in the second half. Offense stopped playing well in the second half, I thought, for the most part. And, you know, Bama just proved to be the better team that day. They, they played what I thought to be easily their best game of the season. And they played it at the exact right time. And they're des the deserving number one team in the country now going into the playoff. And I think that they, you know, have to be kind of like the odds-on favorite now that they get to go up against Cincinnati uh, in, the, in the first round. And obviously they, they have this undeniable mental edge over, over Georgia. And you'd expect if, if Michigan beats Georgia, then they would, you would think that they're pretty healthy favorites against Michigan as well. So Bama has kind of gone through this uneven season, but now they, they sit there in position to win yet another national title. I think that was a great summation. You hit on pretty much everything you know, that I have in my notes here. I mean, it was, it was a game that Georgia controlled early on, but even when they were up 10, nothing for some reason to me, you know, they had forced two quick uh, punts by Alabama on its first two possessions. You never quite felt like Georgia was dominating this game early on, even though, you know, the score at 10, nothing indicated that, but they go on that, you know, that eight play 97 yard drive uh, top it off with the touchdown and three plays later, Jamison Williams is running by the entire Georgia defense for a 67 yard touchdown. And it's like, okay, here we go. Georgia needs to respond. And they come out with a immediate three and out. You know, they burn just over a minute off the clock, three and out. Alabama comes down, long drive, you know, big stop if you're Georgia uh, to force the field goal. Uh, but at that time, I mean, it, the Jameson Williams touchdown to me, I, I guess, signaled like, okay, this is not going to be one of those games where Alabama is going to have to scratch and claw for every single thing they get. Um, and it was right. just shocking to see Georgia give up those kind of plays. I mean, it's one thing for Jameson Williams, who's just one of the fastest guys in the country, but 
you know, time after time, they were able to hit those gash plays through the air. Um, and, you know, honestly, on the other side, I didn't really think Stetson Bennett played all that badly. I mean, he had, he had two picks. The second one, a pick six, essentially sealed the game. They were already down two touchdowns at that point. But um, it, it just felt like Alabama came in and was able to do exactly what they wanted to do. And I, I don't know if Georgia played too conservatively or, or kind of played not to lose. But, um, you know, if, if you if you went in and, like, removed the logos from all the, the uniforms and the helmets and said, like, which team is the one that's ran through everybody all year, you would think it was Alabama. And it, it just felt like Georgia, I, you know, I don't know. You, you, keep, you kept hearing the narrative of, like, oh, well, you know, actually, when you look at their schedule, they weren't really tested by a team like this all year. I, I also didn't really feel like that was the result. It was it was just a a strange game by Georgia. Um, mm-hmm. and, and again, getting up 10, nothing feeling like they're in control, um, not being able to put the pedal to the metal there, I, I think is a little bit concerning when you start to project out, you know, what to expect against Michigan and, and potentially in a rematch against Alabama in, in the national title game. Yeah, absolutely. So, so it really did feel kind of one of my, we, uh, myself and my friends obviously dissected the, this game for like the following 24 <laughs> hours afterward, just constant lamentations about it from Saturday night and into Sunday and everything. Um, but it really did feel like when Jameson Williams scored that, that, that first touchdown to, to make it 10, seven, it felt like at that point, Georgia was losing. Like it, yeah, it just, it, it was, it was that significant of a play. And, and um, you know, now, now we're in a situation where, you know, Alabama unfortunately loses John Mechie for the rest of the season, but you know, they, they are so loaded at receivers. So I, I don't know how much it's, it's really going to matter. It's just going to be a new face in there basically being able to do almost what John Mechie was able to do, but uh, as long as they have Jameson Williams out there, it's it's and and Bryce Young's not getting hit, um, then you know it's going to be really hard to to stop Alabama. And and um, I think part of the reason why Bryce Young was able to pick apart Georgia so well, in addition to the coverage, was just Alabama's offensive line that had been famously maligned throughout the course of the season played its best game. I mean, they they really didn't let Georgia Jordan Davis, uh, Jermaine Carter everybody else the the edge rushers get through whatsoever. I mean, if you allow Bryce young to operate um, with a clean pocket and you know, you're, you're having him drop back that many times, he is going to eat you alive. That, that much became very, very clear. And obviously he, you know, was able to put himself, it, it basically sealed himself uh, yeah. the Heisman with that one. Yeah. I thought this was a masterful game for Bryce young. And he, he had a couple throws that I, I think I texted you of like, he has two throws mm-hmm. in this half. That would be the greatest throws in Wisconsin <laughs> football history by a mile. I mean, one of those just running under it was Jamison Williams. And I mean, the, the accurate, like just not having to break stride whatsoever. And, and young has had a couple of those throws this year, but man, it is, it's really, really impressive what he was able to do against this defense. But like you said, the Alabama offensive line held up. I, I don't know if it was a, a case of, you know, Georgia dialing up the wrong pressures or all of a sudden Alabama's, you know, offensive line, which had just been probably average to slightly above average at best all season, just decided to all of a sudden look like the best line uh, in the country. But it's funny, like Bryce Young, even when he is under pressure, he has a way of just looking more poised than other quarterbacks. Like he stands so still, like he, like his shoulders are always down, like hands are down almost at his, like towards his knees. Like, you know, a lot of quarterbacks are standing there looking around, patting the ball. Like he's so chill in the pocket. And then all of a sudden he'll just, you know, quickly whip out a 60 yard throw for a touchdown. I mean, he, he was amazing. He's going to win the Heisman. Uh, to me, it, it still doesn't quite feel like a classic, like dominant Heisman season that we've seen from a lot of quarterbacks, uh, no. especially over the last decade or so. But, you know, the other finalists are Aiden Hutchinson, Kenny Pickett, and, and CJ Stroud. I, I think he's going to win it pretty easily. I, I would say he's probably going to get, what, 70 plus percent of the first place votes. 
I would, yeah, I would guess so. I, I don't think that you can really make a case, a strong one, that, that anyone no. deserves it more, more than him. I mean, just based on kind of mm-hmm. what wins you the Heisman, the, uh, basically for over the last 20, 30 years, essentially, being the best quarterback mm-hmm. for the best team usually does it. And he obviously you know, left it, the, about as strong of a, of a final impression as, as you could possibly make. Uh, it, with that SEC championship performance is absolutely ripping uh, Georgia apart. So neither of these teams were really able to run the ball all that well. I think we expected that from Alabama. Mm-hmm. Uh, they end up outrushing Georgia uh, 115 yards on 26 carries, one rushing touchdown. That was by Bryce Young. Uh, but Georgia only 109 yards on 30 carries, did not get into the end zone on the ground. Um, I mean, how much of a concern is that? For you, I guess going into a game against a Michigan team that has, you know, arguably two of the four or five best defensive ends in the entire country, you're going up against a, I think, on defense at least, somewhat of a similar opponent to what you just faced in Alabama. Yeah, I think uh, you could probably argue that um, Michigan's defense is scarier overall, especially when you have Hutchinson and Ajabo. I, I did think that Georgia did a good job of not letting um, Will Anderson completely wreck that game. I don't think that he made any any plays that that really completely uh, changed it one way or the other. But uh, yeah, if jo- I think Georgia could have similarly difficult um, situations trying to get the run game going in that Orange Bowl, and then if you expose Stetson Bennett to that pass rush because the run game's not working, then you know you start to get into trouble. You expose him to to getting hit by guys like Hutchinson and Ojabo. You don't like his chances of being able to survive that particularly well, or or not turning the ball over um, if he's getting uh, constantly pressured by those guys. So that that is going to be a huge, huge storyline for the Orange Bowl. Uh, how George is able to do against the, this Michigan offense? I don't think that Michigan has the type of guys that that can do the things that that uh, made Alabama so successful at it. They're just not really a explosive team on offense when it comes to uh, going to the air. Um, we haven't really seen that out of, out of Cade McNamara. They, they did hit some big plays, of course, um, against Iowa. We can get to that game here in a, in a second. But um, if, if Michigan continues its script, you know, where, the, where they're running the ball 60% of the time, I don't think that's going particularly well for them either. So um, it, it, there's a lot more to get to when it, when it comes to how that matchup sets up. And it, I've got a lot more homework to do on it. But, um, yeah, at least as far as how Georgia's offense looks right now, you got to be concerned going into a, a game against a Michigan defense that's as uh, fierce as it is, because I, I still think you could argue it's it's better uh, than Alabama's, and Alabama's did a very good job against uh, Georgia's offense this past weekend. Dogs open up as seven and a half point favorites in that Orange Bowl game uh, against the University of Michigan. Uh, we could talk about the Big Ten title game. This was the nightcap. Um, it was pretty much over, you know, by, by halftime, even though it, it was only 14 to three at that point, a lot of Michigan scoring, uh, in a game that they scored 42 points on 21 of those came in the final 11 minutes of the game. So they did tack on, uh, so some points that were ultimately relatively meaningless, but this game was just controlled completely by Michigan's defense. Uh, Iowa was stopped on 10 straight drives to end this game. There are five of 19 on third down. Spencer Petrus ends up being benched in this one. Um, you know, like you said, Michigan did hit a few big plays. Um, they, they had touchdown drives of one play, four plays, four plays, six plays, eight plays, and 10 plays. Uh, so kind of kind of the opposite of what we saw against Ohio State when they were really able to control the ball in that game. Iowa actually won the time of possession battle in this game. But I mean, it, it, to me, it felt like the Hawkeyes were overmatched from the jump. 
Yeah, that, that's the sense that I that I got. I I was you know kind of in transit back into town uh, during during the the early part of that game, but still had eyes on, still following along. And and yeah, I mean it. We thought that that Michigan was the better team by a decent margin going into that one. You know, obviously they're ten and a half point favorites going into that one, and they just they proved it. I mean, the the defense was absolutely stifling uh, against an Iowa offense that that just was going to kind of need to use smoke and mirrors to be able to, to generate anything. And they probably needed um, a defensive touchdown kind of like they have all year in order to, to really keep this thing competitive. But Michigan was smart with the ball. Um, you know, Blake Corm was explosive on the carries that he got Haskins punched in a couple of touchdowns in his own right. So they, they got it done that way and, and then hit some other um, explosive ones along the way there. So just, uh, you know, kind of a, a good culmination from Michigan. I, I think that, you you wondered if the, if there was one other way that Iowa gets in or you know makes this one a little bit more competitive is how gassed is Michigan after like the most emotional win that that program has had uh, in in quite some time but no they remain laser focused that they, they went in there and just kind of finished the drill did what they had to do um, to to secure their their spot in the playoff um, and, and to win their first Big Ten title in in quite some time as well so uh, just. Kudos to Michigan. That was impressive. They've been a, an excellent team all year, really strong. And for, for them to do that, losing their, their best receiver in the, in the opening game of the season, just very impressive. And, and the way that Hutchinson and Ojabo have come along this year uh, and then Dax Hill in, in, in the back end. Yeah, they're they are, they are no joke. Like, I, I don't think that Georgia can take that take that game lightly whatsoever. Not, not that any team in the playoff takes any of those games lightly, but I think Michigan has has a very legitimate shot of, of playing uh, on January 10th as well. Iowa, meanwhile, uh, heading to the Citrus Bowl uh, against the University of Kentucky. Uh, let's rewind to the early window. This was an 11 a.m. kickoff for me uh, in the central time zone. Baylor 21, Oklahoma State 16. A bizarre, uh, at, at times, poorly played game. Uh, a terrible first half uh, for Spencer Sanders and that Oklahoma State offense, but they rally back. Uh, and put together a 17-play drive uh, to end this game that ultimately falls one yard short, shades of Kevin Dyson. Uh, Oklahoma State stopped six times in a row from the 10-yard line or closer. They got a pass interference on there that moved the ball to the two. Uh, and, and then Desmond Jackson stopped on three of those four plays. There's an incomplete pass in there as well. Um, it was one of those where, like, immediately in retrospect, you're like, oh, I could have called plays. I would have got them into the end zone. Uh, <laughs> but, but more than anything, I mean, props to the Baylor defense. Even on that last play, on fourth and goal from the one, it certainly looked to me like Desmond Jackson had the angle to get in. And you could kind of see on the replay where like plant foot that he was planning to kind of make that final dive into the end zone kind of slipped and he just couldn't quite get enough momentum. Yeah. I mean, like it, you, you should like overlay the, like the, the music from like late in the Friday night lights movie over that. I mean, that was just, <laughs> it was just like, so, Oh my gosh, what a what an yeah. insane ending sequence for, for and you know in such a huge spot uh, there in Jarrett World for, for the Big Twelve Championship and, and you know gosh if Oklahoma State punches it in there I don't know that Georgia's in the playoff. Oh come uh, on, come on. Well, I think at that point we you know there was still a, 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 I don't, I, yeah I think that was the better that was probably the the more likely option right I mean the fact that Georgia's still above Cincinnati to me it is, is an indication True. of how that would have gone but at that time Cincinnati had not played so. If you're Oklahoma State, you're thinking we win this and we're rooting hard for Houston to beat Cincinnati, which was a possibility, ultimately did not happen. Um, so maybe if, if there is one positive you can take away from this, if you're Oklahoma State, it's that, you know, chances are you probably still weren't getting into the playoff, but 
yeah, I mean, who knows how it how it plays out? Yeah, it was it was crazy. I I, I can't believe how badly Oklahoma State played, especially in that first half. Like you mentioned, I, I watched a good bit of that game before heading over to the stadium, and they just kept making these colossal errors, and it, and it was so unlike what they had been pretty much the entire season. So unfortunate end to, to what was an awesome season for, for Oklahoma state that they, they get, you know, a pretty fun bowl game, I believe against Notre Dame. So that, that'll be cool. But um, you know, if, if you're okay state, you, you hate to see it end like that and, and, and mm-hmm. on something that another program is going to, to be talking about for the rest of time. Like it was what an unbelievable goal line stand from Baylor. Yeah, un- unbelievable finish to this game. Unbelievable reaction from Dave Aranda, who just looked like he had finished up watching like the most boring movie of all time. No reaction whatsoever <laughs> on the stop. Uh, I-, I don't know if he was just waiting for like a flag to come out or making sure that they didn't get across the goal line from his angle, but uh, the most muted reaction you're ever going to see uh, in that situation. Um, Oklahoma State still ends up you know, in a New Year's Six. They play Notre Dame uh, in what should be actually a pretty fun Fiesta Bowl matchup. Uh, and Baylor ends up in the Sugar Bowl. Uh, against Ole Miss. I, I actually like a lot of these secondary bowl games that we ended up with. Yeah, I think we're going to have a lot of good stuff to to uh, to enjoy um, here this bowl season. I like a lot of these matchups. And and yeah, like that, it feels like the New Year's Six actually really does have some punch to it. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes you run into a slate of New Year's Six games where it's very clear that one of these teams is so disappointed that they might mail it in. We, we've seen yeah. that. Uh, time and time again, but I, I'm not getting that vibe at, at all for, from this year. I think OK State, Notre Dame is going to be sweet. Baylor Ole Miss is going to be a lot of fun as well. Uh, what One, you know, team that, or game that's not in the New Year's Six, and it's <laughs> it's the most random kind of just sad bowl. It, it kicks off at 9 Eastern on Tuesday, January 4th. Why do they why do they do this? LSU, Kansas State. Why do they do this? at, at Why? Why is it that day? Yeah. <laughs> Squeeze it in and somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd I mean, be so mad is... if I was one of the players in that one. Like it just like let right. it I end. Mean, this is this is three days after uh like you know the traditional New Year's Day bowl games. This is well after the, the first round of the playoff games. Like I, I could see playing this one on like you know, push it back and play it that Friday or something before the, the national title game or or that Saturday. I, I mean, maybe there's NFL games at that point. Um, this just seems like maybe there was some sort of scheduling conflict at uh, wherever the Tax Act Texas Bowl is being played. Yep. Either way, uh, t- tough scene. And that's going to be <laughs> there's I guess that in recent years, there always has been like that funky um, hanger on mm-hmm. uh, bowl game that the week after the uh, the the playoff and everything is decided. But that that one is particularly Still. funny just because the, those two teams, the way that they've played this season is just ugh, well, it's going to be. That's a gross way to end, right? Like, or have like the penultimate uh, college football game of the season. I mean, if you're LSU, like, how many fans are making the trip to Houston for that one? This is being played at NRG Stadium, uh, the the Texan Stadium, which is fairly close by, but you're right. two years removed from winning the national title. You know, a lot of people went to that game. A lot of people traveled to to other LSU road games or neutral games. Like, what percentage of the fan base is like, all right, pack it up, we're we're heading out, we got to go beat Kansas State. Yeah, my, my only guess is the LSU students who are still on Christmas break. Yeah, uh, that that are Houston natives because there are, of which there are plenty. But uh, even that, then, I don't... that'll that'll be a, yeah. Even then, like those kids will probably be like in Breckenridge <laughs> or something. Like they're just not right. gonna want to uh, spend any money uh, to yeah. to go see that a, a Tuesday night bowl game against K State. Mm-hmm. Uh, completely meaningless. Um, so yeah, that's uh, 
Yeah, I, I can't imagine the. I could I could see a lot of LSU players opting out of that game as well. Yeah, I could see LSU as a team just opting yeah, out. Yeah, they you know, might like just, just want just take the forfeit. I don't know if that's even allowed. Um, I, I will say I'm glad Wisconsin also has a late night bowl on Thursday, December 30th. The SRS Distribution Las Vegas Bowl or the SDLVB uh, kicks off at 10:30 Eastern time on Thursday, December 30th. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll see if I, I believe I'll be driving back to Georgia that day. We'll we'll see how much I catch of that one, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, hmm, hmm. Have you have you At locked in plans to watch football. the first round? We're we're still figuring out. We're we're all so rattled from from Saturday that we. Yeah. I think that like we we can't even really think about New Year's yet, even though there's an obvious need to do that because it's just mm-hmm. three weeks from from this Friday. But yeah, at, at this stage, no no one's really come up with with a uh, great sure. idea for for what they're going to do for the playoff. I don't think anyone. That, that I know is going to go down to Miami. So they're actually, you know, that my, my friend group does not represent the entirety of, of the university of Georgia's fan base, but I, I could definitely see Michigan having it, oh, taking yeah. that stadium over a little bit. Absolutely. I, I think especially, you know, a team that hasn't had this kind of success in a while, I think you're itching for, for the opportunity to go on a trip like that. Um, let's, let's go back to Cincinnati, Houston. Um, again, a game that had pretty major implications coming into the day. And as soon as Oklahoma State goes down, if you're Cincinnati, you pretty much know at that point, if we win this game, we are going to go to the college football playoff, which in some ways almost makes it you know more pressure packed. You know, I, I think um, knowing that you, you know, everything is in front of you, you control your own destiny. And, and this game was close for a little bit early on. Um, it was 14 to 13 at the half. Cincinnati comes out, scores a touchdown on its first drive of the third quarter gets a pick immediately uh, on the next Houston drive and then a quick score for Cincinnati. And, and at that point we're pretty much off and running and, and Cincinnati went from being up one point to like, you know, 20 minutes of real time later, all of a sudden this game is 35 to 13. Right. Exactly. So that, that was just such a huge sequence. I, I remember checking my phone and, and seeing that, that, you know, Houston was putting up a, a very, very legit fight. And we, we talked about that a little bit on the, on the Thursday show, you know, given respect to a Houston team that, that have won, 11 games in a row and, and hadn't lost since the season opener. Um, but yeah, Cincinnati really did what it had to coming out of half there and, and really kind of started to put that game away, scoring those 21 points in the, in the third quarter to just kind of to cinch it. Houston, you know, scores a late touchdown in the fourth to, to make it a little bit closer. But yeah, since he since he won and they covered and when you covered, that makes you a great team. And uh, that, that obviously helped uh, put no, but it did cinch everything. And it, it put them into the playoff and, and kudos to them They're I mean, they've had an unbelievable couple couple seasons run under Luke Fickle and Desmond Ritter and, and you know, Sauce Gardner, of course, and, and Kobe Bryant with a C, Kobe Bryant, um, all these dudes on Cincinnati, a lot of fun to watch. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to see what, what they can do against Alabama. I know I know the spread kind of goes to show you what the difference might really look like, you know, about two touchdowns. But. Mm-hmm. Cincinnati's going to give them everything they got. I, I know that for a fact. Well, I compared this, I think, last week to, you know, when Hawaii went and played Georgia and got smacked around by Matthew Stafford. Do, do you think it's more likely that we see a game like that or we see a game that, you know, midway through the third quarter, Cincinnati's hanging around? I still haven't completely uh, sanded down my, my take just yet. Um, I, okay. I, I, I don't think... Shot. Right. Yep. Still there. Um, you know, waiting for for uh, my belt sanders and so on to get there. Just completely telling on myself that I don't know anything about woodworking. Um, Sounds like you do. 
right? Oh, well, I, I gave it a run. Um, but it that game against Georgia with, with Hawaii, Hawaii just had zero things going on for them in the trenches. Like they they just got Colt Brennan smashed for that entire game. Uh, I don't know if if Bama's defensive line matches up quite like it's as quite big of a mismatch against Cincy's O line. We'll see. I'm I'd probably be guessing that it is though, or at least to, to some extent. Um, I don't really see the the miracle uh, Boise State versus Oklahoma type of type of setup here. I think Alabama just simply they don't lose those type of games, and and uh, so maybe since he keeps it interesting, but that there will be a moment where Alabama just breaks their spirit and uh, and just kind of pulls away is is my guess. Yeah, and, and like you said, you know the thirteen and a half point spread, uh, which I would not be surprised, you know, swells up a little bit over these next few weeks. That would kind of indicate uh, where the public is on this game. Uh, let's further to Friday night, the Pac-12 title game. I, I think I said something to the effect uh, on our preview pod of, you know what, I could see Utah winning this game, but I, I would almost guarantee that it's not a, another trouncing by Utah. Uh, boy, was I wrong. This was, this was in fact, another trouncing by Utah, 38 to 10 uh, in a game that Utah controlled from the start, uh, really was never all that close. It was 23 to nothing at the half. Uh, kind of a nightmare game for the Oregon offense and Anthony Brown. Uh, and what we now know is Mario Cristobal's final game uh, with the Oregon Ducks. Yeah, I like you said, you know, we expected this one to be a lot closer this time around. I, I've said that Oregon, with, with pretty stupid reasoning, admittedly, um, thought that Oregon, two weeks after getting boat raced by Utah, would, would come back with, with something a little bit better to, to account for Utah's attack and, and to, um, you know, maybe get a little bit more going on offense, but nay, uh, on, on both fronts, Utah really ending the year hot, like scorching hot. And, and you know, now they get um, a Rose Bowl berth out of it. I believe it's the first in program history. So, so cheers to them for that. But um, yeah, if, you, if you're Oregon, it's not just the way that this season ended, uh, but but now Cristobal is gone. And I, I guess we could use that as, as a jumping off point uh, to talk about that a little bit further. I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. I, I'm just a little bit surprised just kind of with, with the with the thousand foot view of the way this coaching season carousel ha, has unfolded. It's kind of amazing to me that that USC and Miami are the winners uh, of all this, because I, I think getting my getting Mario Cristobal to Miami is such a huge windfall. And they, they paid so much to do it. I, I think Miami leads all of college football in this cycle uh, for money paid, you know, having to buy out. Cristobal from his contract at Oregon, uh, having to pay out uh, Manny Diaz and to get a new contract for, for Cristobal. It's a lot of coin. And, and apparently uh, Miami has, has famously in the past been um, been more penny pinching with, with their with their sort of athletic department um, decisions. So for them to do this is a, is a big kind of sea change for for um, for the Canes. And I, I'm very interested and excited to see what Cristobal is able to do in, a, in an area that he's obviously extremely familiar with. And, you know, in an ACC that, you know, that there's paths to getting a program right back into the national conversation pretty quickly. If you can get that excitement going back around the U in, in, a, in a more sustainable way. Yeah. It, it, it's surprising to see Miami shell out that kind of coin for a head coach. And, and when you look into it, people, you know, people on Twitter were sharing this, that, uh, apparently the university has come into some money because they've been like printing cash from uh, a hospital on campus that they had some sort of deal with. So 
Uh, actually, overpriced medical care is now paying for the head coaching salary. That is so Miami. I, I absolutely it love it. I, I, I actually was just watching. I don't know if you tangenting right, right here, uh, but there's a there's a great show on, on Nat Geo called Trafficked. And one of the episodes was about um, black market plastic surgery. And I, <laughs> they spent a lot of the episode down in Miami. Not that that was connected to the university, but, um, you know, vibes. I, uh, I was also doing some recon on Mario Cristobal's uh, Wikipedia page over the weekend, and I, I noticed a fantastic section under the personal life header uh, that he was extremely close to becoming a U.S. Secret Service agent in 1998. He even went as far as to inform uh, the University of Miami, where he was then a grad assistant. He met with his players and said all of his goodbyes, but then the next day he changed his mind and showed back up to the team. Like kind of kind of the like real life incarnation of the I'm not leaving gif. <laughs> and, and like if you look at Cristobal, the cut of his jib, I could see that. I feel like he would be kind of secret service. Yeah. He's got good very, size. Very, very protective. Yeah, no, he he would have done great with that, but he's obviously done uh done all right uh, as mm-hmm. as a coach as well. Probably and made the right call. <laughs> I would th- I would say so as well. And then I, I would like to hear your thoughts too. Like when it came down on Sunday where it was like, okay, Miami's given Cristobal this ultimatum, and if he doesn't take the job, uh, then, we're, then we're keeping Manny Diaz. Or Manny Diaz. So <laughs> yeah. what, what do you think Manny Diaz's weekend was like? <laughs> Just, yeah. That's tough. I mean, can you even come back at that point? Like, I almost feel like if you're Manny Diaz, you're like forced into a potential resignation. Like, you just got completely big-dogged by your own employer. Um, like, kind of, kind of pantsed in front of your team if they try to bring you back after that. Yeah, no, no one's listening to you at that point. Um, so that I, I do feel like Miami definitely did him, mm-hmm. did him dirty in that, in that respect. Just the, the public airing out of, of letting him be, be twisting in the wind. To that extent, um, was, was um tough look. Before we move on, I do any like obvious candidates stick out to you for for the next Oregon coach? I mean, it, it's, we've kind of had to cycle through so many names with like these, you know, big job after big job transitioning in the last week and a half, but I, you know, maybe just because we're running out of names, I, I haven't really seen too much thrown around uh, over these last, you know, 24, 48 hours since Cristobal left. Like the only name that's kind of been thrown out there and, and it's usually a little bit tongue in cheek is, is Chip Kelly. But, you know, I, I looked at a few articles of, of, you know, people either adjacent to the Oregon program or, or more national sources throwing out some names. And you see, you see Matt Campbell, you see Dave Aranda, um, you know, you see Joe Brady, who was recently let go by the Panthers. Uh, Dan Mullen, his name came up on a few lists. I would like to personally nominate Chris Peterson. Uh, so, you know, if he ever wants to make a return, this would kind of seem like a kind of an ideal spot to jump back in. But do any of those names or, or someone else that you might have in mind stick out as a, a really good fit for you? Yeah, it's interesting. It doesn't feel like that there's any home run hires left uh, to, to be hit here. And, and um, you know, oddly enough, I would have thought that, you know, with everything that transpired, that maybe Nevada's Jay Norvell would have been interesting to Oregon. He takes a, a completely lateral move and goes to Colorado State yesterday. So I don't even know what to make of that. Um, but that surprising in conference. And I, I would kind of argue that Colorado State's a step down from Nevada, but yeah, very strange. But I digress. But but I mean, the, the names that, that you mentioned those would all be be very very solid guys. Um, I, I think Matt Campbell would be my favorite of that group. I think Chip Kelly would be my least favorite of that group. Um, Mullen, I, I more so see him taking this next year off 
and, and then maybe uh, or, you know, maybe if the NFL is interested in him, although I'm sure his his kind of overall uh, coaching stock is down just a bit after the way things ended at Florida. But um, yeah, or, Oregon, I feel like is kind of left with with um, I would if I'm a Ducks fan, I'm pretty nervous about the way that th- this next uh, few weeks are going to go as far as securing that, that coaching hire and making sure it's the right guy. If, if, and again, if I'm from Oregon, if I'm Phil Knight and so on. Um, I do everything in my power probably to to get a guy like Matt Campbell, even if Matt Campbell, his his season at, at Iowa State obviously um, underwhelmed and they kind of uh, took themselves out, out of national prominence with, with some early losses this season. But I still think Matt Campbell's a great coach and a great program builder. Um, but obviously expectations are a little bit different in Oregon. It, it's not built. It's not just getting you wins the way it is at, at Iowa State. It, it's a little bit loftier there, of course, after all these um, Pac-12 championship appearances, Rose Bowl appearances, and so on. Um, but I, I believe that if Matt Campbell wanted to take that next step, Oregon would be a good place to do it. Yeah, and you know, I found some odds for um, you know, next Oregon head coach, and, and Matt Campbell comes in at 9-1, to one, kind of right in the middle of the pack. Chip Kelly's the favorite here, pal. He's at plus 175. <laughs> Um, you got Justin Wilcox, the current cow coach, right behind him at two to one. Joe Brady, four to one. Uh, Brian Harson, five to one. Kalani Sataki, six to one. Um, Chris Peterson's 11 to one. Aranda's 14 to one. The Aranda thing is interesting because I, I think to me, this is that would clearly be a step up. But I also feel like Aranda, it seems like he really wants to be in this position where he's continuing to build up Baylor. And, and you know, maybe, maybe a few years from now, if he does stay there, the gap between a program like Baylor and Oregon, you know, we don't look at it as being so cavernous. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And and I, I think you can only be extremely encouraged, obviously, with what Aranda has been able to do the, these last couple of seasons at Baylor. I think it's going to take a bit to pry him away. I, um, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily see him, see him leaving Waco. He's obviously in a great state for recruiting, way more talent rich. Oregon, you got to go into California, that gets a lot trickier now with, with Lincoln Riley there. So I, I think if, you, if you're Randa, just stay put, maybe, maybe ask for a nice little raise, something like that. But um, boy, if Chip Kelly is is the favorite, uh, then Oregon is just kind of, uh, you know, the verbal meme of uh, the the guy putting on the, the face paint and then like the next slide over, he's got the, the clown wig on as well. That would be such a bad move for Oregon, I, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm just not, I'm not a Chip Kelly guy. Yeah. It it feels like there would just be almost an impossible standard to live up to. Right. It's like, all right, we're just, we're just going to pick up right where we left off back in what 2011 or whatever it was when he left there. And there's a small chance that that could happen, but there is a much larger chance that uh, I I think it would, you know, things have changed over the last decade. And, and I think he would be kind of chasing some ghosts of years past that, you know, Oregon can certainly return to being that program. I just don't think hiring the guy who did it, you know, 12 years earlier or whatever is the way to, to achieve that. No, I, I don't think anything about what, what Kelly's done at UCLA makes, makes you think at, at Oregon, like, Oh yeah, no, we got to get him back. It, it, the guy's mm-hmm. just not that interested in recruiting. I, I think that his system isn't quite uh, you know, it's something that, that people have learned and built on and improved upon while he's kind of stayed the same. And I just, I just don't think it would, there's just no way that that, that that works out well, the reunion. So on Sunday, we got news that Brett Venables will be taking over at Oklahoma. Uh, somewhat out of nowhere. I mean, obviously, Oklahoma needed a coach. Obviously, they wanted to make a splash. 
but you know, by all accounts, Venables was was very satisfied being the defensive coordinator at Clemson. Uh, of course, he does have connections to Oklahoma, uh, where he served as the DC, the assistant head coach, uh, for several years in the mid to to late 2000s, 2010s. Uh, but what do you make of this hire overall? It feels like it feels like a B plus. Feels like a good hire, but uh, I think that at the end of the day, that um, we we now know for sure that that Oregon has taken a step back as far as its head coach goes. Um, Clemson's been blessed to have Venables uh, not be interested in, in other big time jobs over the course of these last few years with the defenses that he put together at Clemson, the job he did recruiting, you know, churning out all these first round talents on defense out of Clemson. He's done a great job there. If if he can, you know, kind of get the the defensive side of the equation figured out for Oklahoma in a way that they they simply haven't in I don't know maybe ever or you know you'd have to go back to the 90s type of thing yeah. um th- then you know that this this could change some things and you know gives them some backbone going into the into the SEC when, whenever they make that transition um he's obviously got to get the offense and the offensive coordinator correct uh, I've heard that that levy from, from Ole Miss would be uh, kind of near the top of his list. If he's able to get Levy in there, um, that, then I think that, that that provides a significant boost. But um, I'm just I'm never crazy this day and age in getting a defensive coach. I know that I understand the irony of that being a guy who roots for a team that Kirby Smart uh, head coaches. Um, but it does it doesn't feel like Venables is like that that prodigal son that, the way that 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 Smart was for for Georgia or anything like that. And Venables. I don't know. Maybe maybe this hire is a little bit splashier. We talked about this a little bit off air. If if Clemson's coming off a, a year like we have come to expect from them, but I, I don't know. It, I'm sure it'll be fine. But I I don't know if if he's going to be the the next coach that that wins them a national title. I think that they're, we're going to see another coach a, after this one. I, I don't necessarily see this being like a legendary tenure um, from Brent Venables. Right, and I, I think what's most interesting is you're going from being the team that was all offense, no defense to hiring a, a defensive coordinator, a guy who knows defense and is going to want to make this a, a defensive program. And it's not like you can't win that way, but you know, we've, we've seen teams be able to, to find a lot of success being a really good offense with an okay defense. There's not a lot of teams that have a great defense and an okay offense that find success. You know, it's like you, you, the only team that kind of bucks that trend is like Alabama or Clemson when you have great, you know, you have great sides uh, on both ends of the ball, but it's just it's just a big a big swerve, I guess, for an Oklahoma team that's pretty much been synonymous and kind of been at the forefront of this extreme tilt towards explosive offenses in college football. And and you know it's not to say that they can't still do that, but you know when you go from perhaps the most explosive, innovative offensive coach to a defensive hire like this, it's it's just a big a big sea change, I guess, for a team that is going to have kind of a new identity. We think going forward. Yeah. And, and, you know, that there's so much to, to being the head coach that that's different than, than just being a great coordinator. Like with, you know, he's been able to just completely focus on his guys, his side of the ball. Uh, Dabo Swinney has obviously managed everything else and been like a great CEO of that, of that program at Clemson. So I, I think there's just a lot of unknowns here. I'm, I'm not going to say that it, that it can't work out, but like you said, it, it's definitely a jarring stylistic change. Uh, for, for Oklahoma to, to get a, a defensive-minded guy like this. Um, a lot of this, again, always comes down to, to what his support staff looks like, um, how he rounds out the, the rest of those coaching hires. If he can if he can hit it right as far as the OC goes, I, I'd imagine that the defense w- will be better under him. 
and you know we'll we'll go from there. But I, I don't view this as like a home run hire by any means. No, not a bad hire though. I think if you're Oklahoma, you at least got a name. You know, I think to me, if you're if you're if your goal was kind of to appease the fan base or appease donors, you know, it's like, hey, we got the the Clemson defensive coordinator. That that to me, you know, right or wrong, that ultimately is maybe a little bit easier to sell to a mm-hmm. fan base than saying like, hey, we we hired the Kansas State head coach. You know, that type of thing. True, true. Now that's a very good point. He is a name. He, he you know, I'd say he's one of the the most well known college coordinators, you know, or, or has become that for several years now. I mean, it, um, I don't think that there are very many other uh, coordinators that, that have that sort no. of name cachet. Um, so, yeah, everyone knows Venables. Everyone knows, you know, his scowl on the sideline and everything like that. Is a, He is a intimidating uh, looking individual. So I'm looking for the Sooners to be a little bit tougher at, at the very least. Yeah, uh, absolutely looks the part of a guy who played linebacker in the 90s. Like, no question about it. Every, th- every single thing about him. Um, by the way, we get a, we get kind of an interesting slash sad Alamo Bowl matchup between Oregon and Oklahoma. Kind of one of the low-key intriguing bowls. That is that is strange. And it's too bad because we, we don't really know if, if we're going to get like a, you know, a max uh, uh, result type of outcome. But yeah. the, the Alamo Bowl for years has become my favorite non new year six bowl. That that's also not, of course, the, the Popeye's Bahamas bowl um, that, right. that always leads us off on, on that Friday. Um, but yeah, Alamo bowl has had some, some wild, wild games in, in recent years or the Oregon TCU game from like six, seven years ago goes down as, as literally one of my favorite bowl games of all time. Um, yeah. That, it feels like this one might, might be lesser than the sum of its parts just because of everything that's happened. Yeah. Um, over the offseason with, with these two teams. Yeah, we already know Kayvon Thibodeau will not play in this game. I, I think that's probably uh, you know the first of many dominoes that could end up falling before this one ultimately kicks off. But uh, we pretty much made it here, man. We got we got Army-Navy this coming Saturday, uh, as always, the, the only game on the slate. And then, you know, we could start looking ahead. Two Fridays from now, we got the Bahamas Bowl and we got the Tail Greeter Cure Bowl. What is Tail Greeter? You know, I'm I'm not sure. I, I do look forward to familiarizing myself with the sponsors of each of these bowl games. But when we uh, when we sit down next and, and preview bowl season, because that there are uh, some goofy ones that, this year to to say the least. So I, I look forward to, to breaking those down. I feel like they get more and more obscure every year. Like there are some years where like the names just like sound funnier. Um, but but like the I don't even know like half of the companies that are sponsoring these bowls. I'm, I'm looking up what Tail Greeter is and. Uh, it says it is a digital marketplace that aims to make tailgating more accessible to fans all over the world by having them join local enhanced tailgate hosts. So like a like an Airbnb for tailgating, kind of. Okay, okay. I, I'm, I'm, at a I'm loss seeing here. the theory behind I it. I, I'm I'm amazed that they're staked to you know in a position to um, sponsor a bowl game. Uh, that, that's impressive, right. but we, yeah, we've seen some, some companies <laughs> pop up over the years. I remember battle frog got the, got the oh, fiesta yeah. bowl. Yeah. It's of like, course. What, what are they up to now? What's right. battle frog I, I, now? I have no you idea. You can kind of picture, I, I don't, I didn't know what it was then. I don't know what it is now, but you can kind of picture the, like the elevator meeting for this, right. Where it's like, all right, we're putting all of our eggs in this basket. And, you know, for this Northern Illinois Coastal Carolina matchup, like this is going to be it. Like it, it reminds me of the AM radio guy on Hot Rod. It's like, <laughs> I'm putting all my eggs in this basket. You know, it's all about FM and color TV. But this event is going to bring back AM radio. I, I feel like Tail Greeter is kind of in that same spot. 
I got. I can't. I can't add to that. That that was absolutely perfect. Uh, now, I, I I similarly have have that tattoo. Um, and and you know with, with the other bull sponsors. Uh, and then you know uh, tail greeter uh, floating safely ahead. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.